Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey, guys. Hey, Jason Lincoln's here. Thanks so much for listening to our show. Here at Said It Happened, we like to think we've got our finger on the thinkfluencing pulse of a nation. But you know how that goes. While we may think we have all the answers, you may have some additional questions. You might also have some answers of your own. So remember, we like to hear all your burning questions. We also like to hear stories that are important to you. We even love to receive recipes. If you've got a good dry rub, please send it our way. Anything. So give us a shout. We will find time to take some of your questions and observations and discuss them on our next podcast. So don't be shy. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're talking about, how you're living by emailing so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. You will become champions of our hearts, which you can then put on your resume. Thanks a lot. So that happened. This week, the 2012 race welcomed Ted Cruz to the GOP scrum after the Texas senator made his presidential ambitions clear to a literally captive audience of Liberty University students. He's been immediately anointed as a long shot, but is he really? We shall endeavor to find out. Meanwhile, there are other places in the world besides America. And how are things going there? And what does it mean for us? We will talk about elections in Israel, unrest in Yemen, and, and I hesitate to even say this aloud, a potentially hopeful turn in Afghanistan, graveyard of empires? Finally, as if you needed something even more surreal and complicated in your lives, we're going to talk about seniorage, the minting of dollar coins, the minting of platinum coins, the eternally ephemeral nature of the concept of money, and, strangely enough, whether or not Europeans are terrible people. This will all make sense for a minute or two, and after that, I make no guarantees. I'm Jason Lincolns, with Huffington Post, Zach Carter, Jessica Schulberg, and Allie Watkins. We don't care about Zane, and we're not sorry about it, but here's what happened first. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened. It is a podcast. You know that. Downloaded it, listening to it, probably. Hopefully you're listening to it. You're not actually standing outside our office in Washington, D.C. listening. uh, What are you doing there? (laughs) Right. So we're at the Huffington Post office in Washington, D.C. It is springtime right now in Washington. I think uh, I'm with... uh, Zach Carter of the Huffington Post. Yes, and we're also joined today by... Allie Watkins, also with the Huffington Post. That's right. Allie, welcome back. It's been a while since we had you I know, on. it has been. Glad to be here. Springtime has sprung, and like I think it's off to a really poor campaign so far. It's Rainy. been full of gaffes. Mm. It's not ready for prime time this spring. Yeah, spring has gaffed. We had snow in Washington in the spring. That is a huge gaff. I mean, Huge that is, gaff. That is like... Uh, that's that, that's basically like a forty-seven percent move. Why won't you know? spring lead? Why won't <laughs> spring lead? It's a question that I've been I've been asking myself. How have you guys been this week outside of spring being a a shit pile of human emotions? Um, 
it's this week's been good. Congress is kind of scurrying to try and get out of here for their two week break. So I think I'm <laughs> Must there. Be nice. I know, wouldn't it be? So I think they're actually going to be stuck there working late tonight. I think the concept of working late is foreign to them, but they are going to have to work late tonight. That sounds awesome. And then they get out of there for two weeks. So that's been busy. My wife's a teacher, so I'm like an adult human who still celebrates spring break. It's like, woo, spring break's coming. (laughs) I was wondering where you got that Fort Lauderdale t-shirt. It was a gift. It was a gift from an admirer. Yep. Uh, Zach, how are you? Uh, well, I, I got to be honest. Last week was pretty rough uh, with Virginia getting knocked out of the NCAA tournament in the uh, the, the, the second round. We were uh, hurting. It's It's been a lot of pain, but... Uh, life is pain. But life is pain. And so, uh, you know, in that sense, there is there is constant. Uh, there is consistency. We have... We have... Um, we have sort of a, a, a Nietzschean stability, stasis, I guess, with, with things being totally meaningless <laughs> and uh, everyone being dominated by uh, randomly powerful people, which is great because that's how politics works. And uh, and we get to talk about that now. And I think that was probably one of the best like NCAA bracket transition to politic. That was talk. really good. That was really impressive. I'd that was be really impressed good. if you could do it again, actually. I've been thinking about how meaningless everything is for a long time. So <laughs> <laughs> I can, will be ready next time you guys. We could curry a lot of favor with our producer Ibrahim Balki by switching our allegiance to the Wisconsin Badgers. I'm definitely rooting for North Carolina who has either won or lost by the time you have uh, you've heard That's this right. Podcast. That's true. That's true. My case for the Wisconsin Badgers those kids are so fun. They're all into the stenographer mm. at the at the press conferences. They're weird and fun and goofy. Nigel Hayes, the kid who was like this kid <laughs> Okay, he's had a funny week because, like, he was so into the stenographer that he started peppering all of his press conference answers with, like, really big words to make the stenographer have to type really strange words into the thing. Oh. And, like, just establishmentarianism. Stenographer struggles. Apparently, apparently, one of the last, uh, apparently, one of the, the last press conferences, the, the people introduced him and, and asked if he wanted to say something about the stenographer. And, and so Nigel Hayes said, syzygy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was another stenographer, and like, a pair, I, I gather it was the stenographer he was talking about, but he didn't realize that his microphone was hot, and he turned to Frank Kaminsky and said, God, she's beautiful. And like, everyone started laughing, and he was like, oh my God, did you guys hear that? <laughs> he was like completely embarrassed. Ooh, He's yeah. a kid. He's a kid. It's funny when kids uh, are like kids. It's kids adorable. Things. Uh, yeah, but you know, North Carolina's got Marcus Page, who seems like a real classy guy, as these, as these unpaid professional athletes go. And uh, and Roy Williams wears these great jackets. They look awesome. I've actually this is the first time I've ever filled out a bracket. Really? I, yeah, because for NCAA athletes, because I rode in college, we weren't allowed to fill one out or be in a pool. So this is like a big first. Seriously? Thing. Oh my god! Yeah. I remember. See, I remember this in like high school. My teachers warning me that. Uh, I mean, they threatened to suspend kids for participating in, in brackets because it was gambling. It was gambling. It was gambling. It was. I mean, <laughs> of all the like vice patrolling that happened in high school, that one just seemed like the absolute dumbest. It made me want to go like smoke weed in the uh, bathroom just, that to, must, just to like. But that must have been hard. You're from Philadelphia. You went yeah. to Temple. That's like basketball so we mecca, were all about the it. Palestra, all those old time mm. matchups, the Big Five, St. Mm. Joe's Temple. But we were. Warned every year. We weren't allowed to be in a bracket pool. Wow. It's against God's law. NCAA, man. (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of God's law. (laughs) (laughs) American politics. We got a healthy dose of it this week. 
We are welcoming we're we're welcoming Allie into the sordid mess that is campaign reporting. I tried to avoid it for a while, but right. I'm slowly being tugged in. But we're no all, escape. We're no also, escape from the twenty sixteen vortex. <laughs> <laughs> we're also welcoming Ted Cruz to the presidential race. I was worried the God's law was gonna be a transition. No, he was exactly. You see where I was going with yeah. that? He he uh he um he did his uh I guess his campaign rollout or everyone's here's what's weird. Everyone's doing campaign rollouts, but like Ted Cruz is officially more official because of certain legal barriers he's crossed that other people haven't crossed. Uh, Legal barriers that are there just to allow people to sort of skate and circumvent various Mm -hmm. campaign finance laws. Cable news people also to talk about whether or not someone will run for president when clearly they have been running a campaign by any reasonable (laughs) semantic standard for months. Like he's crossed a certain threshold ahead of all the other GOP candidates. And so people wrote the articles about how there's a curse of being the first one to run for president. Like they rarely win. Uh, I, they rarely even get nominated. Al Gore, I think, was the only one I can think of in the past few election cycles who was first in the race and also won the nomination. Uh, but but what's stupid is that, like, of course, it's not the first. We've been talking about a dozen other people. <laughs> but 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 we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about Ted Cruz today, um, who made his his made his. Um, his campaign announcement at Liberty University. There was uh, Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. Yes, uh, we're not not in in the know. It's it's a, a real hotbed of uh, evangelical conservative Christi- Christianity. Yes, um, but what's what's funny is that like we found out that the the by no means was Liberty sort of a monolith. Uh, a lot of campaign report, a lot of reporters there got onto the social network, yik yak. This is this is the thing that's happening in our lives right now. <laughs> Yik yak! Wow, when I got stuck in a blizzard in the Grand Canyon, I had to buy these yak tracks for my for my feet. There were like <laughs> chains that went over my feet. Is yik yak like that? No, that, that helps you walk no. in the snow. Yik yak is really. yik yak is is sort of a, a, a an anonymized social network where people sort of like tweet their feelings while they're eating their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so there are a lot of people who are kind of like sort of like joking about the fact that like, oh, you know, this, of course, what a lot of people won't mention is that everyone has to be at this convocation event because we're required to yeah. be here or they, we can find, get fined. We yeah, can find $10. Were... Like people did make the jokes on Yit Gak. I'm only here so I don't get fined. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of, there's, there's actually a pretty decent uh, population of people, Liberty, who back Rand Paul, mm. uh, and um, ruined and a bunch of Ted Cruz's photos and yeah, the T-shirts. Yeah. yeah, those guys are good at just the photo bomb game. Mm. You know, back from the Ron Paul days, I think they invented photo bombing. They sort of photo bomb multiple elections. <laughs> um, but what, what's interesting though is that Ted Cruz and Rand Paul have for some time been discussed as as Republicans who are sort of competing for the same anti-establishment vote. That's right. Which strikes me as very odd because Ted Cruz has been unwaveringly hawkish on foreign policy. He does not appear to be a libertarian in any of the senses that um, Rand Paul has sort of cultivated this sense of libertarianism about his own campaign. Um, and yet yet they seem to be sort of in, in the same league. I've, I was kind, I'm, I'm constantly sort of flummoxed by that. I'm wondering where they're perceived as in the same league, because I don't get that impression here as much anymore. And I don't know, maybe I just haven't been in the 2016 vortex enough. But I like I think, you know, from talking here around town, I agree with you. I think I don't know that when it as it all kind of, you know, flushes out that they're both going to be looking for the same demographics. I agree with you. I think Ted Cruz has totally abandoned the libertarian streak. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because I think conventional wisdom a year ago would be like, wow, if Ted Cruz and Rand Paul jump into the race, they're going to be competing for the same votes. Uh, Here's the thing. I don't actually... I don't actually know how Cruz maybe cobbles together a coalition. Obviously, he's making a huge play for evangelical voters, which is not stupid. There's been a, a pervasive theory in politics that harnessing the full power of evangelical voters can change election results. It's I'm, I'm skeptical about whether that vote is that powerful. I also am skeptical about whether that vote is that monolithic. I mean, there were all those... Ted Cruz supporters there, uh, sorry, Rand Paul supporters there at Liberty, and of course, evangelicals have been known to support Democrats too. But what's, sometimes they're really into human rights and against climate change. You know, what's interesting though is that is that I think that maybe people have been writing the Ted Cruz's a long shot story a bit prematurely. The um, the Monkey Cage, which is a political science blog on uh, on yeah, really good folks at at the uh, at, at the Washington Post. Um, they actually, um, and I encourage you to read the article, is Ted Cruz too conservative for Republican primary voters? So I'll just basically summarize it, that doing one of their studies done with something called a box and whisker plot, they actually found that surprisingly, Cruz is actually to the left of like the concentrated GOP voter demographics in three of the early primary states, Iowa, South Carolina, and Florida. Uh, so... So the the idea that he can't probably be the idea that he's not going to be a popular force in the four primary states and he's to the right uh, slightly to the right of New Hampshire and I mean he's slightly to the left or right of all these voters but he's a lot closer to the heart of that GOP constituency in those four early primary states than Jeb Bush is mm-hmm. and you know we could also say the same thing about Jeb Bush how does he cobble together a coalition because he has a lot of things that are sort of like heterodox to where the GOP base especially the primary voter base is at. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's there's a distinct possibility that Cruz can actually prove to be very popular in those states. Probably shouldn't be written off as a long shot right now. Well, and I mean, to some extent, also, I, I think you're, you we have seen a, a sort of co- like coalescing over the last three decades, but certainly in the last few years, around what, what a Republican is, what policy positions are acceptable within the Republican Party. And so to some extent, when we talk about some one candidate being to the left or to the right of another within the Republican Party, there's a pretty pretty well-established set of things that they are going to be in favor of. And the question tends to be, you know how what what their what their tactics are going to be in in the ways that they will pursue them. Like like I thought a lot of the stuff that Ted Cruz was was describing in his rollout was pretty conventional wisdom republicanism. Like be super hawkish all the time, hate all regulations. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it was it was just it sounded like just sort of GOP orthodoxy. But where he's unorthodox is when he's cool with shutting down the government <laughs> on a fool's errand quest to try and achieve those goals, um, which makes him look tougher to some some parts of the uh, of, of the voter base. It makes him look foolish to political strategists in, in, in Washington. Um, and I think, you can, yeah, I, think, I think you can see that coalescing that... Uh, I can't would, believe this is happening. Oh, my God. Diane Rehm would just destroy you. Yeah, my cell phone just went off. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you can see, see this with the evolution of Rand Paul's foreign policy, right? I mean, he's been... He, he's come across as being very um, skeptical. I won't say anti-interventionist, but skeptical about the, the effectiveness of U.S. interventions abroad. Um and has really shifted to becoming much, much, much more hawkish. This week, he introduced a budget amendment that would boost the defense uh, bill by, you know, cutting social programs, mm-hmm. um, boost defense spending. Uh, just, just totally abandoning the, the the whole anti-interventionist sort of sort of label. Um, and and I think you you can just see the the parties becoming really, really hawkish again. And and I th- I think more monolithic on policy, even if even if its voters are not monolithic. Well, one thing that's interesting is that is that 
a lot of the stuff that Monkey Cage put put together begs the question. Sorry, I hate using that phrase. It raises the question. Mm. Maybe it's not the candidates who are pulling this uh, the GOP to the right. Maybe it's the states. But Ted Cruz is still necessarily going to kind of pull this field a little bit rightward. Yeah, I think it's natural. I think what you brought up is an interesting point, kind of seeing both, you know, where Cruz and Paul have kind of started to shift and define themselves. You know, it's almost like... I feel like this is also going to somehow, you know, sift out throughout the 2016 race is that you talk about this heart of the GOP constituency and then you have, you know, this whole outlier, you know, talking box and whisker plots out to the right. And I don't think the GOP it's it's in, you know, it's well known. It's kind of in this redefining phase. It needs to figure out how to survive. And I think somewhere, you know, between that GOP constituency and the far right, you know, somehow libertarianism comes in, but nobody really knows what to make of the Republican Party in that space. And I think that that's where you're going to see, you know, Paul's kind of maneuvering his way in there and changing, you know, I think it's going to be interesting with him um, because he's seen as this face of libertarianism. And as he shifts, you know, is the definition of libertarianism going to shift with him Mm -hmm. or is he going to shift away from libertarianism? So that, I think, will be an interesting development. It is interesting the way libertarianism now is really, really closely affiliated with the Republican Party. That Mm -hmm. hasn't always been the case. There there was a time when libertarians were, were seen as more conservative than liberals, but but also deeply critical of the Republican Party generally. I feel like it's I feel like it's just like sort of structurally inevitable when you're out of power, you identify with the party that's also out of power. During the Bush administration, you know, a lot of libertarians found common cause with liberals in in a whole range of issues, especially uh, Patriot Act issues, surveillance issues, uh, you know, executive authority issues that w- began uh, began in the Bush administration, and frankly, then ended up getting like compounded, extended, enhanced by the Obama administration. So they they've I mean they they kind of have have always sort of found a common cause with the, with each other, and I think that there's there's been a sort of a bleed into some areas of agreement. There's now a big bigger push. Uh, to reform the criminal justice system, Cruz, by the way, is a player in that game. Uh, that's 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 one of those things where he's going to find a lot of liberals that will that will cleave to him. Uh, common cause with, you know, the idea of reducing, you know, getting rid of mandatory minimums, uh, you know, sort of like reducing the terrible, terrible, terrible effects of the drug war, that kind of thing. But it, it, that's just a very limited extent. You know, one of the things that struck me ama- most amazingly about Cruz's approach at Liberty is that he was like very brutally honest. You know, his vision for what he would do as president, it just simply doesn't include like half the country, like a lot of people run. (laughs) Anyone living in a city is going to be disappointed. A lot of, a lot of people who run for president say, you know, I know that like a lot of people won't vote for me, but I tend to like be the president of all of you, help all of you, that kind of thing. And a lot of them even mean it, but Ted Cruz just doesn't even accept the pretense. He's just like, there'll be, you know, this is going to be my, my vision as a country for like Christian conservatives uh, everyone else, I guess, is going to have to fall in line or find something else to do. Like he's at least brutally honest about that. And you could see it, 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 that was both in the you know the the actual substance of his speech, but also the style. I mean, he was he was speaking with with sort of you know the the mega church headset mic, TED Talk headset mic, um, giving sort of a mega church style sermon to an arena full of people at a a conservative Christian university. Yeah, I th- I think that I don't think that was an accident. You know, he could he could have. He could have performed in a different way, but I, but I think he's he, it was very clear. I think he said, you know, half of all you know born again Christians, I believe was his phrase, but half of all born again Christians don't vote. If if everybody got out there and voted, we could kick ass and be, you know, an evangelical government. Um, and 
you know, that's that's what he's going for. Um, that I think to a lot of people in old line Republicans is actually a little bit frightening. Uh, you know, a lot, like a lot of the Reagan era Republicans teaming up with evangelicals was just sort of like a deal with the devil, so to speak, right. uh, to try to get to 50 plus 1 percent. They always got screwed by the Reagan administration, the first Bush administration always got never, never. The promises were never kept to evangelicals. Right. They've kind of like, you know, kept that in mind this whole time. Um, the, you know, at the same time, Rand Paul, he's going to do his, uh, campaign announcement in front of an aircraft carrier. (laughs) And that was kind of plays into what you said. He's, he's going more for this. I I don't want to call it hawkish, but certainly leaning that direction. I'm not an isolationist. (laughs) (laughs) Send this aircraft carrier places. (laughs) You know, would an isolationist do that? No, an isolationist would be like, keep that aircraft carrier here. (laughs) Wrap it in some duct tape. Put some packing peanuts around that. Yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. Rubber bumper. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're back. We're still with Allie Watkins. He was here, and we are now joined by Jessica Schulberg. Hello. That's awesome. Good to see you. We were just joking about how the last time Jessica oh. was on, she waved. And, and like, I'm still waving, guys. We all, we all, I wish that I wish that podcasts were like a visual medium. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, a lot of people don't know this, but like the White House, we had to fire the so that happened florist this week because oh. you know it's, it used to be beautiful flowers in here, but uh, there's no flowers in here. Ryan Grimm, our bureau chief, pointed out that you know this being an auditory medium, it didn't make sense to have flowers. Mm. So that's why we had to let the florist go, not because the florist was terrible, though purely <laughs> purely coincidentally, he was an awful florist. Oh, uh, so, that's too bad. But we miss him, mainly because he was my hydroponics guy. Anyway, <laughs> so so with the reason we have Allie and Jessica here today is we're going to delve into some of the thornier <sighs> issues of foreign policy <laughs> that have engulfed the world and change the game and <laughs> threaten to, you know, add another warp and weave to decades of foreign policy cock-ups. We'll begin tonight, <laughs> today, uh, in Israel. So so we're now a week, week or so past the Israeli election, and we're also past the period of time when they formed the coalition government. And going into the Israeli election, there were two kind of strains of thought. One was that the electorate was uh, moving ever rightward, leaving the Israeli left behind. But there was also this idea that there was enormous discontent in the electorate with the way the economy had sort of like stagnated and there was not a general and, and Bibi Netanyahu's government wasn't generating enough ideas to sort of like leave people the feeling that the economy was growing again. So people in politics, political science, recognized those two things as fundamentals, but these also were in conflict with each other. Turns out tie always goes to the incumbent. Mm-hmm. So Bibi Netanyahu back in power. But our relationship with him seems to be now about to change in a lot of radical ways. In some ways, yes, but military and intelligence cooperation isn't really going to go anywhere. They'll continue to be the number one recipient of U.S. military aid, foreign aid, uh, disproportionate to that which we give other allies. So the main thing that will change um, is a result of Bibi Netanyahu's campaign strategy, which was when two days before the election, somebody asked, if you are prime minister, will there be, you're saying there will be no Palestinian state? And he said in Hebrew, correct. 
Um, since then, he's backtracked it, and that hasn't really <laughs> <laughs> hasn't hasn't really been effective. Um, the Obama administration basically says, you know, we need to take him at his word. Um, not just that which he, word though. So what the Obama administration? Because yes, during a lot of press briefings, people are saying, well, why are you taking him at his word then? Like, you know, he he tells the truth to Israeli media, but he lies to American media. Like, what are you saying? Political science also holds that <laughs> candidates do try to keep their campaign promises, and so right. I don't know. Campaign well, promise, well, beyond like, that, it's it's the <laughs> idea that if he won, based on that, he's sort of constricted by this extreme right wing party and the voters that elected him on that promise. So whether or not he he believes in the two state solution, I think, is um, sort of irrelevant to the Obama administration. More what it is is what he sort of based his next um, his next few years as prime minister on, and it is on the promise that there will be no Palestinian state. The importance of the two state solution, I mean, it's my- there's myriad importance, but uh, to me. Paramount in my mind is the notion that there has been a need, uh, I think a strategically important and a historically significant desire to have a Jewish democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, But it seems to me that the path that Israel is now on with Netanyahu is that they're 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 ever they're 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 sort of like forging to a situation where they get one or the other. Right. They either get the the uh, the the Jewish homeland part. Or they get the democracy part. They don't get both. Mm-hmm. Well, because I mean, if you that, had a if you had a fully democratic state, if it were to encompass Greater Israel, including the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, which is what President um, Rivlin wants, he says that we can have a democratic state that encompasses the full area, equal rights for everybody. But the issue is there. There's more Muslims than Jews, and you, you don't have a you don't have a Jewish democratic state there anymore. You have a a Muslim majority state. Right. Um, What's what 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 do you do now? What do you do now? One of the the many speculations going forward is that Palestinian efforts to secure statehood through international recognition at the UN um, might have more support. Uh, traditionally, the U.S. has blocked every single attempt and threatened to use its veto power if it did win enough votes. Yes, yeah. Um, ex- like, what, what's the significance of that? Are we likely to change that veto stance? The president and the State Department haven't come out and said we're going to change it, but they've said that it's part of what's being considered. It's part of what's being reevaluated. And so the idea is that before when the Obama administration told the Palestinians, hey, don't go to the U.N., you need to negotiate. Like this is the only way to bring peace is you have to negotiate directly with the Israelis. It's pretty hard to keep saying that when the Israeli prime minister has publicly said, I don't believe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
believe in a Palestinian state. So it sort of forces the Obama administration to reevaluate that. I don't know if that would take the shape of the U.S. leading the role in drafting a U.N. resolution and voting for it, but even even an abstention at this point would be a huge policy shift. We're about to launch into a 2016 campaign, and uh, obviously there are going to be numerous occasions where it's going to come up in debates. Candidates are going to be asked, how do you plan on proceeding uh, in the Israeli peace process? Uh, Can we maybe sort of like have that opportunity to maybe have a presidential candidate sort of tell the truth and be like, well, we don't really have partners. We don't have partners that are definitely not non-disingenuous. No. So, so, so because, you know, my life has been spent uh, with like a generation of adults telling their children, don't worry, we're going to handle this. We're going to settle it. America's got, got skin in the game. We're highly invested. And, you know, many, many decades passed and we're still telling our kids, don't worry, Israeli peace process just around the corner. We're going to settle this out. Like, we can we just not, can we just sort of say, look, we're working. Can we? Can we just say we're working on it? But there's really like a dim, only a dim hope of it pulling off. Can't we like at least set expectations more correctly? So I think what we'll hear, as this does become an increasingly partisan issue, support for Israel. I think you'll hear the Republican candidates saying Bibi Netanyahu has said over and over that he's committed to peace with Palestine. He engaged in talks. He he is a man of peace, but he's also a man of reality and reality on the ground. Uh, because of the threats from Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS. That's that's what they'll point to to say that right now it just wouldn't be strategically responsible to withdraw from the West Bank. So I think that's what you'll hear from the Republicans is there is going to be peace, but you have to wait to stabilize. Um, they'll say that the Palestinian Authority has to break with Hamas in this what's called a unity government, but not actually unified at all in practice. And then from the Democrats, I mean, that'll be interesting. I think Obama's probably treading pretty carefully not to put Hillary or whoever is the Democratic contender in the position where they have to fight so hard against this line that the Democrats don't support Israel. And I mean, it's unfortunate that uh, criticizing the abandonment of a two-state solution can be equated with not supporting Israel, but that, that'll that be something that the Democrats will have to contend with. Well, let's move on to another one of many topics that are worth considering, Yemen. Yes, is falling apart. Is it still on the map? Did anyone check this morning? I, I think it's still there. I didn't look. It's easy. It's fading. I, yeah, I it's usually go to isyemensillacountry.tumblr.com to <laughs> see if... <laughs> let, me, let me pull that up real fast. Yes, we should probably check. I mean, this has been a long time coming. You know, this was not... Well... I mean, it wasn't unexpected for people who have been paying attention to the region. Uh, you know, you had back in September the Obama administration touting Sana as a counterterror success. Obviously, we've had a, a very willing counterterror partner in the Hadi government, um, and it was helpful at that point. You know, we're launching an ISIS strategy to tout, like, hey, even though the region's falling apart, we have a success story here. Um, yeah, JSOC has been up to their chaps in Yemen for <laughs> yeah, quite some time. Yeah. Um, Joint Special Operations Command. Yeah. Yes. The the <laughs> strange like ghost intel. Anytime, yeah, it's everywhere. Anytime something like sketchy happens, it's J-Sock. usually JSOC. Yeah, like, going, we didn't do it. Exactly. <laughs> JSOC is initiating ghost yeah, protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, this speech from the Obama administration happened what like two days before the Houthis overran Sana. So there, it's it's kind of it's consistently underscoring, you know, the the line that the Obama administration is out of touch with his foreign policy in the region. Um, 
you know, the downfall, then resurgence, then downfall, and then boat escape of Hadi. But maybe is, not actually. Yeah, he might just be hiding in the cell. Possibly not. Is is really interesting. Um, you know, it's it's unclear. It seemed for a little while like he and the Houthis, you know, were working together. And I think that it was, you know, the Hadi government has certainly been beneficial to us and maintaining that relationship has been very beneficial. I think when it was made clear how, I wouldn't say unstable, but fragile it was that the Houthis could just come in and, you know, basically just walk in the front door of the presidential palace and take over the entire capital city. I think there was some talk in Washington of like, you know, who could we possibly see as another viable counter-terror partner in the region? I, I'm not saying that we would talk about negotiating directly with the Houthis. What spurred the Houthis um, to take this action? Um, well, you have, they're kind of the other end of the spectrum from the from Yemen's other um, terror group, uh, AQAP. Right. Um, so they've kind of been warring over territory in that area for a long time. Um, and they... AQAP being Al-Qaeda. Uh, yeah, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so, and uh, you actually, the one of the more compelling narratives in this whole Yemen story, it's kind of like the connecting factor to so many foreign policy crises that are happening right now um, because the Houthis, obviously, in some cloudy fashion, are connected to Iran. You know, whether directly backed by Iran, whether indirectly supported by Iran. Um, so, you know, that's something interesting, too, with last night with the, obviously, Saudi Arabia announcing this giant coalition going in, fighting against the Houthis. Is there some timing advantage there, you know, showing... Where, you know, physically they're fighting against the Houthis as an Iran deal inches closer. Are they also, is it also kind of a show of brawn against Tehran? And one of Saudi Arabia's biggest fears with the Iran deal is that we're going to return to a pre-revolution relationship with Iran pre-1979 where the U.S. was best friends with the Shah. And that's sort of the last thing that the Saudis want to see. So I think Ellie's right that that could be kind of a flexing of muscle, like just because you might be approaching some sort of normalization with the U.S. doesn't mean that we're going to lose our foothold in this region. What's interesting to me is that I remember back in 2008, as people started to sort of like stitch together what they thought an Obama doctrine would be, foreign policy-wise, it seemed to me that like a lot of the overarching conventional wisdom on that was that there would be sort of a break from heavy-handed foreign policy. We seem to have been you know, for decades, we've seen them be shifting between sort of like heavy-handed neo-Wilsonianism, heavy-handed neoconservatism, and that the Obama administration was intended to sort of like take the light-touch approach. And I think that maybe that was preserved for a considerable amount of time. But when you consider everything the military has been doing in Yemen, when you consider the fact that we got sucked into Libya, uh, and now... And, and and at the same time, the light, the, what I thought was a light touch actually became a sort of crucial and stupid disengagement from the nascent Iraqi government. Well, I think you could differentiate between a light foreign policy touch and a light military touch. So Sure, sure, sure. From day one, he said, I'm going to reach out to Iran. I'm going to reach out to um, Arabs in the region that have traditionally been marginalized under the Bush administration. Um, and then I think con- on the other end of that, the light military touch sort of Bred circumstances in which he was forced to re-engage. I think Libya is probably a good example of that. But were we forced to re-engage in Libya? First, in his, in his mind, we're, we're watching, the, and then you could argue that if there had been a longer engagement in Libya rather than a prompt airstrike, take out Gaddafi and leave, then 
things in Libya might be a little more stable. You know, and even even Libya, I think, illustrates kind of the clumsiness of an Obama foreign policy and engagement there because for a long time we were very good friends with Gaddafi. Right. And oh, yeah, yeah. That's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were I mean, assisting. We, we, weren't, we weren't having it off with him like Tony Blair was, but uh, we were, you know. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a... We're still on the Valentine's list. Exactly. Yeah, right? I got the Christmas card every year. And so it's had like... American lobbying firms. Exactly. Doing PR for... We were helping... Period the government in some context render rebels who like three years later we turned around and supported. So it's, I mean, it. you can call it, a, you know, whatever you want to in Libya, like a good example of a light touch military engagement. But it's really, I mean, when you look at the history here, you know, it's not like these changes happened over the course of a, I think it's super heavy-handed. I mean, we went yeah. in, we went in with airstrikes, and suddenly there's all these CIA spooks on the ground there. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like okay, it's like, almost like if you don't call different. it, yeah. And, and I feel like it's it, the concept has morphed into like if we don't officially call it a war, it's light. And if we say no boots on the ground, as we've been trying to say, yeah, then it's the not heavy. Then it's yeah, it's a shower shoes on the short, ground. right? <laughs> Slippers. Yeah. <laughs> Those little pads on the bottom so you don't slide around. All right, really quickly, Afghanistan, new president of Afghanistan coming to uh, the United States. Yeah. Uh, is there is there any kind of breakthrough possible in Afghanistan? Because, like, when it came to our relationship with Karzai, things got very strange. Oh, it and was that government mess. was super corrupt. Mm-hmm. So is there a path forward now? Um, I Congress certainly sees it that way. And, there, I mean, the, the market change, you know, seeing... Uh, the joint session for President Ghani, it was a joint meeting, actually, it wasn't technically a session, but the joint meeting yesterday for President Ghani's speech was almost, you know, reminiscent of the Bibi speech. I mean, mm-hmm. people were so excited to see him, hugs, like standing ovations. He got Congress to laugh a couple times. I mean, he was a total crowd pleaser. And just cool. seeing... what we needed was a comedian in Af- <laughs> running <Yeah>. Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so, you know, he made it very clear in the speech. You had a lot of talk of how they're cracking down on corruption. And there's a lot of support and belief in Congress that he's doing that. Um, And he, you know, he has the track record thus far to support that. And part of, you know, why I think Washington is a little more optimistic in uh, the Ghani government is that he's maintained this, I wouldn't call it, you know, super close relationship with Abdullah. But he's maintained a working relationship there, so you have Abdullah being one of his one of the perennial presidential yes. rivals in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But with their cooperation, you have this kind of coming together that you haven't seen in Afghanistan for a while between you know a government that's cracking down on corruption and I wouldn't call it progressive, but progressive in the sense moving towards a future, becoming a self sufficient state. So you have that joining up with then someone who kind of connects to the more tribal traditional Afghanistan. Ghani said, uh, Ashraf Ghani is his full name, he said that they, he said that Afghanistan will be uh, self-reliant within the decade. He said we will not be lazy Uncle Joe. I don't know why I had to take a shot at Joe Biden like that. Yeah, he was right <laughs> behind him too, Bonner. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think people know that that's really optimistic. You know, even Afghanistan's most gung-ho supporters up on the Hill know that, you know, is Afghanistan really going to be able to support its own security in that region within five? I mean, we're still giving military aid to Israel. You know, if right. Israel can't do it, why can why would Afghanistan be able to? So, um, you know, but I think they would rather. It was kind of very like we'd rather have someone who's super optimistic. You know, I think the what Richard Burr said was like 
how can you be in that region and not be optimistic? How would you get out of bed in the morning? And I was like, that <laughs> what? Did that reach come from the, like reach for the moon and you'll reach the stars? That's what it was. Yeah, Bob Parker's like, you know, even if he gets like eighty percent of the way, it'll be. And it, so it is. Right. It, they basically said Overrated. they should have given him like a nice little like kindergarten in class Gold poster. Star for like, effort. Reach for the moon, even if you miss. All right. Well, uh, okay. I think we'll. I think the best place to end a discussion of American foreign policy (laughs) is with that brief shot of false hope. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, back. Zach Carter joins us. Allie Watkins. We're going to be washed into the world of Zach's bank dorkery. So... (laughs) Money, 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 yeah. David Vitter is mad at Europe. Yeah, yeah he really doesn't <laughs> like Europe. So, it's amazing. So angry at Europe. This is a great amendment. This is a great, again, non-binding budget resolution doesn't mean anything. Um, he he says, he filed an amendment that that is designed to um, to stop this, this new tactic that would, I believe his words were, force Americans to use coins like Europeans. And what he means is dollar coins. He doesn't want to force Americans to trade in their, their paper dollar bills for, for dollar coins uh, and, uh, because that is what Europeans do. And God damn it, David Vitter is no, no, no silly Euro man. Uh, right. <laughs> no coin purses, purses in America. Yeah. We're still trying to get over the scourge of fanny packs. <laughs> Paper money, folding money. I don't want to go. Right, like, like they don't use paper money in Europe either. Like, I'm pretty sure. I don't want to stray too money. far into where David Vitter may have left some folding money in the past. But, but let's talk about that. What's the benefit? Is there any benefit to switching over? I mean, the Europeans did it for some reason. The Canadians did it for uh, for some reason. Canadians even call their dollar coin a loony, which is kind of weird. <laughs> really it's weird. like one of the few things Canada does I can't get with. <laughs> Let's call ours a, ours a goof turd, you know. That would be, be great. <laughs> I wonder if David Vitter would be cool That'll with That will be three coins. fart sauces. <laughs> Thanks for coming to Taco Bell. Uh, yeah, so I, I, what I can tell, this is basically a pissing contest between uh, Mike Enzi and, and David Vitter. Mike en- Enzi's really into the dollar coin, and from what right. I can, from what I can tell, the reason is because, at least according to GAO, um, the dollar coin would actually create about five point five billion dollars of net profit to the federal budget over the course of about thirty years. Okay, how um, does that work? Yeah, wow. <laughs> all right. So. It basically the GAO does it, is the Government Accountability Office. Yeah, it it does it because money is fake. That's how it works. Um, for for a while, there was an argument that <laughs> that coins were more more durable than than bills, and so even though it costs more to produce the coins, they would last longer. So you would have to print as many of the things, so that would save the government money. Turns out that's not actually the cost of producing the coins is is higher. Uh, bills are more durable than they used to be. It's actually just not true at all. It is just total money magic, and it's a process called seigniorage. Um, which is one of the sort of oldest monetary po- powers um, that governments have had. It, 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 is, it is basically the ability to create money out of thin air that is more valuable than the stuff that went into it. Um, so, you know, wh- when you carry around a quarter, it doesn't actually have 25 cents worth of whatever nickel in it or something. <laughs> you know, a penny doesn't have one cent worth of copper in it. Pennies actually sort of reverse seigniorage because pennies cost more to make than they're actually worth. Right, um, we should totally get rid of pennies. We should get rid of pennies. They are an abomination, <laughs> unreason. <laughs> um, 
But but you know, let's say it costs like thirty cents to produce one of these dollar coins. Which is what it costs. It's then worth a dollar. And so you can use it to buy a dollar's worth of stuff, which means the government has made a 70-cent profit on the production of that coin. Right. Um, but it only costs five cents to make a paper dollar. Right. So the, so the seniorage costs are actually better. The profits are actually better on paper money because paper is cheaper than metal. Uh, but uh, but the thing is, if your goal is to replace the existing stock of currency that's being exchanged with new stuff, then you will have to print a whole bunch of new stuff. And the, so the fact that we would have to produce a whole lot of new coins to replace the existing dollars would create about $5.5 billion worth of profits over 30 years for the federal government just from literally minting the money. Uh, and, and it's So it's, it's like magic. It's fake. It's <laughs> fake. But money is also fake. Uh, and we, we, should, we should get used to that, that being the case. Money is not – it is not this thing that is – uh, you know, etched in the ether of the universe. It is a convention uh, that is dependent on on social mores and political power. Uh, I think the Federal Reserve, when they took a look at this issue and they took a more holistic approach, they rec- they recognized that in addition to just changing the money around from paper to metal, you also had to take into consideration how vending would change, how retail would change. How the sheer expense of like carting a bunch of metal around would change over and buying all these damn coin purses, you know? Right. Like, I mean, it actually actually is a huge deal for <clears throat> banks were, to transport large quantities of coins. Uh, the Fed were bills. dim on the issue, like Vitter, though the Fed took no position on whether Europeans suck balls. <laughs> <laughs> David Vitter made it clear. <laughs> Europeans suck balls. Yeah, yeah, that was really what was great. I mean, the policy issue. I I think I think is interesting. I'm I'm pretty much with Vitter on the policy issue. I, I think I think the seniorage stuff is it's not important. If we want to come up with an imaginary five and a half billion dollars, we can do that in other imaginary ways. That's how money works. Wait, yeah, because um, it's like this question. This okay. First of all, there's like sparks flying out of my ears right now because <laughs> as I'm trying to understand this for those of you who can't see this, but it's like the question that you ask in like kindergarten where you're like can they can't they just print more money and the answer is yes they can they, they can they can just print more money uh, and and that is the difference between countries that borrow money in their own currency and and those that borrow in other other currencies seems to be a huge deal like Greece is getting really raked over the coals right now because they have to they they are dependent on the euro system they don't get to print their own currency the ECB the European Central Bank does that whereas the United mm-hmm. States we borrow in dollars we print dollars if we get in trouble on our debt, we can just print the money. Now, that probably ultimately leads to in- inflation, inflation, probably, yeah. but sometimes it doesn't. Japan has not had serious inflation problems, and they've basically been printing money like crazy to deal with very large debts for more right. than a So we can now. literally print ourselves out of debt. Yes. Well, you, you what, can. In theory. Th- there what will holds be us back is there, there is like a band of madmen with their hair on fire about inflation constantly warning about the impending doom that never seems to arrive. But I guess when it does, we'll all be kind of sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It's like the avian flu. It's like, ah, oh, it sucks. We should have done something about that, but we didn't. Fuck it. Whatever. But, but it's not a science. It's not a science. And and so, you know, contrary to, like, what people in monetary economics will tell you, I mean, it's dependent a lot on, like, how legitimate the American political system is perceived abroad, like how strong the American military is. It's, it's, ve- it's a very amorphous process, and there are costs to not printing more money. Like, you, the way that you create wealth in a society is by printing money. That means there's more money for people to buy things. Of course. So if you don't print enough money, you are actually holding back the economy. And so there can be, you know, while you could be worried about the long-term threat of inflation, there are immediate things that, uh, you know, that you, you have to worry about too. This is all a little bit far removed from whether or not David Vitter thinks that Europeans are a bunch of fuckers who can go fuck themselves. But Yeah, that was just weird <laughs> and mean and cruel. But there's one coin we definitely should mint. 
And that is oh, the yeah. trillion dollar platinum coin. Yes, because that will get rid of one major political problem, which deals with the legitimacy of the American political system. And uh, and American currency and it, our credit rating, uh, uh, the credit that our currency is given around the world. Yes, and that is that is the debt ceiling. That's the debacle that we were talking about. Uh, so the United States can't default on its debt unless it just chooses I mean, it can, to by being Try stupid. not to. But, that, but that's the point, like... You, we could have an inflation problem by printing money potentially in 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 you know the far future. Um, even that is is somewhat hypothetical um, based on sort of contemporary monetary patterns. But we cannot have a default. We can just print the money to pay off the debt. There cannot be a hard default on the debt. Um, so the only way that can happen is if the United States just chooses not to pay its debts. And the only way that happens is when this debt ceiling thing comes up every year where the prior obligations of the federal government are due. And right. instead of paying them, uh, Republicans have repeatedly said the, 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 the Democrats and President Obama have to give us something in exchange for our willingness to make good on the prior commitments of the American government. Uh, and this hostage taking resulted in, I think it, it, it eventually gave us the sequester, right? Sequestration? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Budget Control Act, that and that was that was when, to be to to be perfectly fair to the idiots on this, the Obama administration did actually sort of give credence to the notion that maybe the debt ceiling was a good time to start negotiating stuff. Oh yeah, and it was just like that's like when Pandora said maybe I should open this box, <laughs> see what's in this box. Everyone tells me, but I, oh look, all the shit that came out of the box. <laughs> And the Obama has said, but that hope was, was left. Hope was left, and and what and Just and like after Ragnarok, the Obama yes, and the Obama administration <laughs> wised up and stopped doing that. But of course, cats out of the bag. Now, now I've mixed the metaphors. Pandora's box, <laughs> yeah. a bag of cats. Yes. Sorry, the, ocean, the ocean's full of sand. Sorry, <laughs> we are. We, the all, we, all the we all eventually become Thomas Friedman. But do you know what's fun about the trillion dollar platinum coin is that you know the idea is that. If we minted a trillion dollar platinum coin, it would settle the issue forever whether we could pay our debts. Because, like, I guess Obama would wear this, like, a chain around his neck. It's like, what's this? Like, flavor, no, flavor. No. platinum coin. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he, has, he has to take it to the Fed, actually. He has, he has to, to take put, it to the Fed? Yeah, you got to put it on deposit at the uh, Fed. Because I'll tell you what, I would go and touch that thing. I would be like, I want to touch that platinum coin. And here's, okay, here's what's great about the platinum coin. First of all, a lot of people are just like, but. But you need a trillion dollars worth of platinum. That'd be so huge. It's like, no, no, it's not how money works. It's not how money works. Like I was just saying before, there's just like a ten dollar bill doesn't have ten dollars worth of paper. Like, do you know how much paper is ten dollars worth of paper? Go to Staples and find out. And then ask yourself if you want to cart that around with you. The other thing is this this is amazing. One of the questions I had about well, if we mint a trillion dollar platinum coin, what if like Nicolas Cage steals it? Then he's running around with a trillion dollars. <laughs> no. Here's what's amazing. The, the instant it's stolen, it just becomes the value of whatever platinum's in it. Like, pff. Well, I mean. It's like magic. Wait, is that you saying this? Or this is the trillion no, dollar platinum coin theory? This there's, is, no way, there's no way. These are trillion dollar platinum coin facts. No, there's, no way you can, there's no way you can spend the trillion dollar coin. There's just yep. no way. It, it, the, the way it would work in, in Change would government. be a bitch. Everybody, everybody would know that you had stolen it, too. I mean, no one, no one would be like, oh, this is, the, this is the legitimate currency that I've received from somebody. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the one damn trillion dollar coin. Right. So, so the thing is, the, the coin has to be platinum because I, I think the, the budgetary authority to print to mint platinum coins belongs to the, to the tre treasury. So they can do that without congressional approval. Right, yes. So they couldn't do this if it was made out of nickel or gold or some other shit. Yeah. Um, then Congress would be all up in your face about it. Right. But platinum. But platinum they can do. But this, this is the, the whole seniorage concept, Leave yourself right? an out. <laughs> because, because, you know, the difference between, you know, we don't have a, you know, a nickel's worth of nickel in a nickel. 
we have we don't have five cents worth of that. The, the difference between that, the cost of the metal is, is a seigniorage. If you just say the face value of the coin is a trillion dollars, boom, you've got a trillion dollars. And the trick is you take that coin and put it on, on account of the Federal Reserve. And then the Treasury, anytime we get into one of these debt ceiling kind of shenanigans, the Treasury can just draw on its trillion dollar balance from from the Fed and say, all right, well, we're just going to pay our bills with this. Uh, and and then you're fine. The, the, mon- the money is, is printed out of thin air. Um, if tomorrow and- everyone in the world just like became of possessed of the belief that a Run the Jewels album <laughs> was like worth <laughs> more than gold, suddenly the gold standard wouldn't mean shit. Right. We'd be all on the Run the Jewels album standard, which would probably be pretty okay point is this stuff is all amorphous and so it sounds really weird to be like oh we could print a trillion dollar coin or oh we could we, we could you know mike enzi saying we could, we could make money by printing by printing dollar coins um yeah that's it, that's true but all money is is amorphous and, and weird and uh and we we don't really know what the the sort of far frontiers where, where the breaking points and what the consequences of of that that are yet that's that, that's going to be the a, a central study of economics for several years to come really everything in our life depends on our naive belief in its reality you think I'm here, but I'm actually a demon in your mind. Oh my gosh, I needed way more coffee. I'm so. Co- <laughs> That's okay. We'll get you some Descartes and some Philip K. Dick, and you'll be fine. All right. You know, the whole point of this podcast is to occasionally confuse you, but leave you completely unharmed. I succeeded using with a trillion demons. dollar platinum coin. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Jessica Schulberg, and Allie Watkins. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.